0: Joe Seivel, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I appreciate your time. I know it's a crazy time for you and for you know everyone right now, but um, thank you for making it happen.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Jake. I'm I'm glad to do it to carve out some time in my day to share stories from a long time ago in a place that, to some extent, is uh, far away from my current. Uh, confines and residents but uh, always great to be thinking about and and whenever I can be back in Baltimore loved my time there I've had a chance to be there recently some this summer and fall and it's also been uh, terrific to be reconnected to to charm city in the w- land of pleasant living
0: it was great to meet you in person a couple of weeks ago and um, after we met and kind of talked a little bit I had the chance of watching your uh, speech at the National Hall of Fame for lacrosse, uh, National Lacrosse Hall of Fame, um, which I really enjoyed and I loved your message there because you were talking a lot about Baltimore and growing up here and kind of how lacrosse uh, influenced you. It was like an ode to lacrosse as you described it. Um, Maybe we can start off by talking about kind of how you got involved in lacrosse and you know what lacrosse meant to you growing up in baltimore where it's obviously so pop- popular it's like a national or, or regional sport here it's um mm-hmm. you know even more so than philly where i grew up um, what was that like for you and maybe what was some of the messages you tried to impart in that speech that you gave
1: yeah well so again um and this will only be relatable to a small portion of your audience I imagine because it was a a rather long time ago but there was a time um, in Baltimore where the Mount Washington Lacrosse Club was uh, perhaps uh, amongst the premier uh, entertainment draws uh, within the entire community. Uh, as I mentioned in the speech you know clearly for sports fans there was the Colts and the Orioles uh, and I would say, frankly, those two, I'm not, you know, Baltimore Bullets. I'm never sure sold many tickets uh, down at the old Civic Center, now the Baltimore Arena. I think, but uh, for so many people in Baltimore, it was the Mount Washington Lacrosse Club, the Wolf Pack, uh, that that drew people's attention on Friday and Saturday nights all spring long. Uh, and I had the great fortune of of growing up right there. Uh, my 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 dad played for them. I mean, he started playing right out of college. I was born in '64. He was five years in with them by then, and played through the early '70s, and then became the coach. And so, literally, from the time I was old enough to walk, I was on those sidelines, holding the old wooden stick, and 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 uh, sort of picking up by osmosis. I think at first, uh, the culture uh, that is the game, um, and and that culture within Baltimore, uh, the culture of lacrosse, if you will, was was what fed me, and and uh, And to some extent, I, it, I guess I I had pretty unique circumstance. My dad was a high school coach at the park school, you know, and then played for the the wolf pack. And I'm, and I'm growing up right there, right then. And, and to see uh, what I would argue were the country's best players at the time, there was two or three really good clubs, one, the long Island uh, athletic club coming down off the Island, but certainly in the Baltimore area, it was the wolf pack. And I got to be there for all of it. And so, just kind of absorbed, um, the game and, and all that surrounded it, the atmosphere, obviously the game itself became a student of the game as I was growing through that. And, uh, but beyond that, just a feeling of the game, right? lacrosse in Baltimore was, is I hope still a feeling, um, the camaraderie, the relationships, the, uh, just so much about it. I mean, I thought my, my entire life was informed by it. Um, consumed by it (laughs) to some extent. Um, Luckily for me and for us, I would argue at the time without the rigors of the club lacrosse scene, the high school club lacrosse scene as it exists today. We, you know, we played for our schools and we played recreationally before that, you know, growing up age eight, nine, 10, whatever, uh, and played in the summer. But, uh, but we didn't have the whole club scene that occurred, uh, that occurs now. So, um, yeah, it's that's, a unique and kind of forgotten time frankly
0: yeah that's one thing that i've been thinking about a lot just in the lacrosse uh, club scene around here now it's always kind of do more do more tournaments play for more teams and you came up and became a great lacrosse player during a time when there weren't all those opportunities to play you know this weekend and then that weekend how do you think you got to where you you got to in the world of lacrosse without kind of all of the you know, the club stuff, like, w- were you just attracted to the game so much that you went out in your backyard and, you know, you're spending so much time on your own, or were you getting guys out, um, together to play with you? Like, how did you really develop your craft, your game to become, you know, such a, um, uh, renowned player in the Baltimore area and in, in, you know, in the country?
1: Yeah. So t- I, two things, one multi-sport, right? Like, first and foremost i was lucky enough to play multiple sports uh, in school and, and did not specialize uh so i played uh you know soccer and basketball all growing up as well as lacrosse uh was able to 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 wear the the, the gray and blue for, for for gilman and play all three of those sports had great soccer teams uh unfortunately was was hurt for a couple of my uh basketball seasons but was able to play um basketball as well for the hounds and uh I think playing multiple sports, frankly, helped my lacrosse development. There's absolute crossover. Um, you prevent burnout, and 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 uh, you know you just you just become a more a smarter player in all three sports because you're you're seeing the game differently because you're playing different sports. So that's one. And then two, you know, you don't get better in the back of a Volvo. I'm sorry. You know, you get better with a stick and and a wall and a ball. And and that was again one of the unique experiences. At least for me, at Norris Field, where the Mount Washington Wolfpack used to play, that gigantic wall that holds up the Jones Falls Expressway, and I'm not even sure what's there now if that field still exists, but uh, that wall does, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. because the expressway's still there. Yep. Uh, And you know, going to practice two nights a week with my dad, and then games on Friday or Saturday or Sunday afternoons. I was just up against a wall, right, and 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 that led to, of course, just all sorts of hard work in other venues, including my backyard. Um, grew up in northern Baltimore County, and it's funny. This summer we were there a bunch, and driving around, I see a lot of lacrosse goals in front or backyards, up you know north of uh, Schwan Road in that area of of town where there's a little more green space and 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 that opportunity. I had that space as well in Parkton, and had a, a, still exists there today, a barn. And the the lacrosse goal sat in front of the barn. And so when I missed, I didn't have to chase the ball, which was great. (laughs) The barn took a beating for sure. But, uh, you know, that was another thing I think that helped my my game was, I think shooters get discouraged when they shoot and then have to chase their miss, right? And so uh, I was lucky enough to not have to chase my misses and I missed plenty. But uh, as a result, I think of that, you know, individual hard work on, on the, 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 skill sets, right. The shooting and the stick work, uh, both hands throwing and catching. Um, th- those are the two keys, multi-sports and, and just grinding work on stick work and shooting.
0: Yeah. I think that's so important, um, especially multi-sport as a basketball player. Uh, that's one thing that while I'm coaching here at Gilman, I try to get some of these guys to even playing pickup basketball. It helps your lacrosse game so much, same movements, um, picking, moving, cutting, all that stuff translates so well to the sport of lacrosse. Um, thinking about your experience at Gilman, who were some of the the coaches that kind of played a hand in your development as an athlete in those three sports here, when you were a, a student athlete at Gilman?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was only there for three years, but, but, but I did meet some and, and had um, great guidance from some, some really special people, including Sherm Bristow, Uh, as the basketball coach at the time who was outstanding and, and uh, coach Kumar on the soccer pitch, uh, Mickey Fenzel in lacrosse. You know, I would also say that I had a great foundation coming over from park and from my, my rec experiences, particularly in soccer and, and lacrosse. And so great role models all the way through, be they coaches or, or the players, again, those older players that I was watching as I grew up, uh, there's a lot of great guidance and a lot of great example setting. Right. Um, and I would also tell you that the, the, the teams themselves, like we were, we were very close. Uh, our soccer teams at, at Gilman, we were very good and we were a close knit group. I think that matters a lot. Right. And then, you know, when you're playing for your school and I think that this is a huge difference. I mean, I'm in school leadership now. Right. So I've seen this for my entire career, you know, Playing for your school is different than playing in the club environment, because when you're playing in the club environment, to some extent, you're playing for yourself, right? I mean, the investment in time and money, frankly, uh, is because of the outcome that's promised, right? I'm going to get better. I'm going to get a college scholarship, whatever, whatever. You know, I would argue that that it's more rare for for a team to come together and truly be a team at the club level, uh, be it, you know, development academy, soccer, this or whatever, club lacrosse team, that than for a school, uh, Mm -hmm. for a middle school, much less a high school, right? Um, So our teams at Gilman in all three sports, uh, soccer, basketball, and absolutely lacrosse in the early 80s, you know, I was also surrounded by really good teammates. And so great coaches for sure, and a lot of really talented and smart people playing next to me and with me, and, and I got better as a result of that as well.
0: Yeah, it seems like your class at Gilman, uh, class of '82, was just really strong. A lot of good guys. I had I had the pleasure of meeting some of those guys um, last weekend or a couple weekends ago. Um, but yeah, I think that's so important too. And I'm a huge advocate. I think for playing for your school above the club because you're so right that so much of the club scene is se- selfish. It's about the you know the player wants to get to this place and the parent wants the player to get to this place and the coaches want to win for the club program. And I've had experiences coaching in all these clubs around here. And I, I think there is a toxic element to it. Whereas for the, for the school um, there's, there's learning, there's teaching, there's growth, you know, there's camaraderie amongst the team you're playing for your school. Um, So yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying there.
1: Yeah. And there's, you know, you're never going to go back to the 20th reunion of the, you know, whatever 2002 twisters, (laughs) right? Like that's just not going to happen. Um, And, and you're going to go back to the 20th reunion. uh, I hope I'm about to go back to the 40th reunion of the great class of 1982 Gilly tech. And I'm excited to see all those people in April of 2022 at, at that event, 40 years later. Right guys that i played one or more sports with and guys that i just had great classes with right but uh never going to happen on the club side so so you know when you're missing soccer practice because you're at a fall club lacrosse tournament or you know you don't play soccer because you're playing fall lacrosse you know the the, the bus rides uh, the wins the losses the the grueling practices the memorable mud filled practices i mean whatever set of experiences that you could have shared with your with your high school teammates those are gone because you're, you know, you're off doing your, your club thing. Uh, and then at some point that just all dries up. Right. And, and uh, I just think the lifelong indelible memories and experiences and lessons learned on that high school side cannot be replaced on the club side.
0: Thinking a little bit about um, your time at Gilman again. Um, one thing that I find from doing this podcast and just talking to people is like people that watch are curious about how or, or what the school was like and some of the things that stand out to you when you were here in the '80s um, at Gilman. Like what what memories do you have in terms of your classes? Kind of beyond the athletic fields, um, when you think of back about to Gilman. Like what traditions or you know teachers or classes really stick out as as memorable to you um, as a Greyhound? Well, you
1: know, first thing else, I mean again. Joining the community as a sophomore made that, uh, you know, jarring. And 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 there were some great contrasts to Park School. To be fair, yeah. right? Uh, dress code this and all boys that. Uh, it was an entirely different world from the 11 years that I had come from uh, as a pre-K through ninth grade student at Park. So coming to Gilman in tenth grade, I was certainly struck by um, some of the formality. Um, and, and, and sense of tradition, by the way, which I thought, you know, actually had some really good and attractive uh, components. And also, to be perfectly fair and honest, uh, was struck by some of that differently because I had had a different kind of upbringing, if you will. Yep. Wasn't inculcated in all of that from a, from a young age, right? Um, but those were those are sort of superficial in a way. Certainly, the dress code, like whatever. I I, I thought that. Uh, it was, it was an atmosphere of really uh, high level of rigor um, in class, uh, high expectations from the faculty, high expectations for behavior from uh, the likes of uh, Mr. Gamper and, and others who uh, yeah, expected us to um, behave in a certain way, dress in a certain way, and uh, respect the school and its traditions in a certain way, obviously all coming down from Reddy Finney, uh, the legendary headmaster at the top of the chain there. Um, but. You know really strong academics, I was well prepared from my park school experience for sure, but I was not let down. Things didn't get any easier um, and really appreciated how I was pushed. I, I wound up uh, dropping out of the math curriculum after pre-cal because that was like too much for me. I was more of a English history guy. Nick Schlotter was a was an outstanding teacher who we had on 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 that side of the academic equation who really inspired me to frankly become a history major at unc so um loved my time in the classroom there uh you know the building was the building right i mean schools these days are in facilities arms races and gilman is a very different place physically right than than it was um but what you really need in a school is great teachers good books and, and 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 you know healthy, happy classmates, and and you can make something happen out of virtually nothing. So we were, we were happy with what we had, which wasn't nearly what the kids at Gilman have today.
0: Now, your, your, your academic record, I mean, you're, you're an academic All-American in college and All-American on the field too, but uh, your investment in the books and in studies was, was that something that was intrinsic or was that, was that kind of at home you were you were pushed uh, pretty hard towards your academics, or where did that side of you come from? Because that's something that sticks out when you're, you know, when you're reading about you, the academics, and you know, even during the the Hall of Fame um, speech, uh, Willie Str- Scroggs was talking about how you were such a strong student in college. I'm just kind of wondering where that came from. Yeah.
1: So yeah, I think at a young age. Well, two things. One. I'm innately uh, competitive, super competitive and uh, at park we had pretty small classes and other smart kids. And so I do remember as early as second or third grade you know fighting to get the best score on the spelling test, right like you know wanting to wanting to to win the spelling uh, quiz right so so there was that drive to win um, which was in the classroom and on the fields and courts. Um, that's one. Two. My mom was a third grade teacher at Park. My third grade teacher at Park, and and she certainly drove academics hard as a teacher. Uh, clearly, right. um And three, yeah, I guess just some sort of natural <laughs> genetic uh, uh, ability to to perform at a high level in the classroom. I I loved the the middle school experience at Park was really impressive too. We you know we we were pushed hard in our writing and read some, some good books. And I, and I came to Gilman, I think, uh, well-prepared to take on that next level and truly sort of embrace high school. Um, I do remember not doing so well in AP Euro as a sophomore. Hmm. I believe the teacher's name was Pletcher. (laughs) And, uh, I guess I got hit in the face with my first AP as a sophomore and, you know, may have needed to buckle down a little more than I did, but, but certainly straightened things out by, by my junior year. And, uh, really enjoyed that side of the equation. I think I, you know, look, the, the the athletics is going to end. I mean, I should have learned to play the guitar because I could still be cool at the beach, (laughs) right. But you know, my skills I've sort of invested in from ages four to, you know, 26 or whatever. And it's sort of over. Uh, I became a, I became a lacrosse coach, but my playing days were over. Right. Uh, Doing well in the classroom. I mean, that, that carries you for a lifetime. Right. So, um, I was smart enough to figure that out, even if it was subconsciously, I think at first, yep. um, and rely on my brains, uh, as well as my wand.
0: Yep. Yep. Um, something I try to ask people, um, who come on the podcast from Reddy Finney's time at Gilman as a headmaster, maybe if there, are there any memories about him that stand out to you? Um. You know, I kind of started this podcast last year and I called it the path to follow podcast after the documentary about his life. Um, And he obviously had such a profound effect on Gilman and what Gilman is today. Um, And I'm just curious, are there any stories or, you know, when you think about him as a head headmaster, anything that comes to mind for you?
1: Yeah. Well, so now I'm a headmaster, right? And uh, there's certainly things that I remember. I mean, I, I think I've been shaped to some extent by many of the headmasters that I remember, the, the uh, Chuck uh, Callahan and Parvin Sharples from Park and then Reddy Finney from, from Gilman for sure, right? Uh, his presence uh, in the hallways and on campus and on the sidelines in particular uh, was noticeable and, and um, impressive, right? So, as a headmaster now, I mean, I I try to model myself after that kind of level of uh, full immersion and engagement in the school community. I'm sure you've heard that from others who have spoken of of Mr. Finney. And again, you know, I only knew him for three years. And as a 15 year old, when I got to Gilman, my my head was pretty much, you know, I was just trying to fit in and figure it out. So it wasn't like, you know, I was smart enough then to kind of fully absorb what he was bringing, but clearly the strength of his character uh, and his presence, right, um, was noticeable, and, and and I certainly felt it, and, and probably more so as I came out of my sophomoric stage and became a senior, right, but, uh, you know, and then, of course, I would argue that the class of 82 was not without its uh, rebellious uh, streak, and uh, I was amongst that crowd, too, and You know, so Reddy Finney uh, wound up combing my hair on graduation day because he did not accept how long it was or the state it was in. And, you know, thankfully, he didn't put the shears to it. But uh, (laughs) he was going to make sure I was going to look as good as I could anyway, to some extent, get back within the confines of what a Gilman guy was supposed to look like, because I'm not sure I ever fully did that or bought into
0: that. I love that. Um, So coming out of high school, you went to UNC, and what led to that decision to go become a Tar Heel? I mean, I know uh, Willie Scroggs, your coach, was probably a key influencer there, but you grew up in Baltimore around Hopkins and Maryland and you know some of these great lacrosse schools, and I'm sure you had a, a choice because you're you know such a great high school athlete of where you could go. What about UNC attracted you?
1: Well, so, um, you know, I I was recruited uh, by a lot of schools, including Hopkins and Maryland. And again, you know, and this is no slight to people from Gilman to go to Hopkins. It's a great institution. It's an unbelievable lacrosse program. There's no argument there, right? For me, it was a mile down the road. And uh, I just had that sense. And again, you know, my parents both grew up in Maryland and went to college in Maryland Washington College. And worked in, you know, so it wasn't like I, I had a lot of wanderlust from, from my upbringing. Um, but I think there was something about leaving the state that mattered to me, at least subconsciously. And so um Hopkins wasn't much in the equation after, after a little bit of that senior fall, just because I sort of wanted to leave town. Right. Mm-hmm. um And so then it was really down to UVA and, and UNC for, for me at the time. and, and, I couldn't have gone wrong either way in so many ways, two great institutions, obviously, uh, UNC was on fire in the lacrosse world. And again, our younger listeners aren't going to remember any bit of that, but there was a time in the sixties and seventies where UNC lacrosse was a complete joke. Um, and then came on the scene pretty quickly when Willie got down there, um, and recruited an incredible class, um, the class of 83, uh, Brought him out of Baltimore, brought him out of Long Island, brought him out of Central New York, and 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 that that combination of kids was really the backbone. In addition to the class of '82 and and '81, they carried that team forward to two straight undefeated seasons in in '81 and '82. And so here I am, a junior and senior lacrosse addicted, uh, you know. And and for UNC to find any decent games, they're going to come to going to have to come to Baltimore, right? So they come play Hopkins, they come play Maryland, right? And and so I got to see unc in action albeit on the road for them um and there was something really titillating about that program for sure um and uh ultimately just just sort of made that call Mm -hmm. you know i had great recruiting trips to both places decided to go to unc and, and don't regret it for for a second
0: what was uh willie scroggs like as a head coach and what are some of the maybe the the you know coaching styles or tips that you took from playing for him into your own coaching career after college um you know maybe I, I think about that all the time about how you know as a coach i often think about some of the coaches that influenced me or some of the things that they did that i liked or some things that i don't like that they did and you know i i maybe subconsciously enact that as a you know as a lacrosse coach or a you know on the field myself um what was it about willie scroggs that struck you or some things that you carried with you into your own career
1: yeah so i did i coached for a long time after college uh two different schools three different schools actually um and willie was indelible right i played for him for five years i i, I wound up uh, uh getting hurt and uh, opening face off of game two of my first senior year so i decided to stay and play a fifth year so i was around willie for a long time um And fall and spring. I mean, you know, we had fall lacrosse even back then. And uh, I would say that the way he allowed us to play uh, was was super important, right? Like, uh, get out of the player's way to some extent, uh, to some large extent, frankly, you know, some of the best lacrosse I remember playing was in Lock Raven Summer League and or, uh, you know, down at the Palm Beach Lacrosse Club right out of college. In in the Florida Lacrosse League, you know, club lacrosse, summer league lacrosse, where nobody's yelling at you Mm -hmm. and where you can just play. Right. And the final score is going to be 17 to 16, but that's okay. And you might have thrown the ball away three times and missed the goal 10, but you got up and down and you were making plays and uh, reading the field and having to react off of situations in the moment. It was uh, completely unscripted right yep. well UNC lacrosse was largely unscripted uh so you know these days when you watch a college game and it's so scripted and you know you're going to take 15 20 seconds to get the d-minis off and put the O minis on and you're going to throw it down the side then you're going to you know it just feels a lot more coach control you're going to call time out the first sign of danger uh Willie let us play a little bit, let us play a lot. And then I really appreciate that about him. Our practices were, were organized Uh, at the same time. They were ultra competitive and I adopted that mentality as well. Make sure that we have great intervals within a two or three hour practice. Uh, Each one's thoughtful and planned. Um, And then you're promoting a lot of competition as much as you can, right? Not pregame, but, but most other days trying to push kids to push each other and let the, cream rise to the top. Right. Yeah. Um, now I will say and only half in jest, in case Willie ever hears this, that, you know, the line be a shooter didn't really help me much because it doesn't instruct I mean, when I, when I missed the goal and he yells, be a shooter. Um, my response <laughs> would be, I'm trying coach, <laughs> but yeah. Yep. So, but, and I remember that that's in my head a lot too. Right. Cause he yelled at that
0: to me quite a bit. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. I mean, you really don't see that anymore. It's hard to play. I feel like it's hard to play nowadays because, you know, you have to win, you have to win number one, but there are only 12 games on the schedule. So like every little action is scripted and micromanaged and, you know, um, it's very different from what you're describing, even though your team obviously was very successful with that, that looser kind of run and gun let you play a little bit mentality today you can just watch and you can you see that guys are holding their stick a little bit tighter because y- you can't lose the ball in this possession or you you know you're gonna get pulled if you throw that pass. Um, it's very different from what you described but it's interesting to think about that. Um, so Joe Wood uh, I'm very curious about how you got into the world of education kind of after college and maybe what inspired you to start teaching and coaching? Um, What were some of your first jobs teaching and coaching and kind of where that motivation, where did that motivation come from?
1: Well, you know, looking back, I think it was a super wise decision, right? It's easy to Monday morning quarterback, but it's been a great life. Uh, I lucked into it, to be honest with you. I was a second semester senior uh, in the Carolina locker room, the uh, headmaster at uh, Graham Eckie's Palm Beach Academy, which is where I wound up getting my first job. He had played at Carolina in the mid-70s. He called the locker room. I think he talked to Dave Klarman and said, Do you know, any seniors that want to come down here and teach and coach? I'm leaving. And what Ted had done uh, in, at, at Graham Eckie's Palm Beach Academy was build uh, a, a good lacrosse team. And this is a school that had like 100 kids in a total, but he had he found 12 kids that loved the game. And he taught them the game for like seven or eight years. Right. And so they were all like juniors and seniors. And now he was leaving. So he basically hired a lacrosse coach and, and hey, figure out what you can teach. So I was a coach first and, and became a history teacher because that was my major at Carolina. I had no classes in education at the time. Very little training Remember meeting with my mom. Again, she was a third grade teacher and I was teaching high school History. Um, So that was only semi helpful. And uh, next thing you know, I'm in Florida teaching and coaching. And um, again, coaching three sports. I actually coached girls' volleyball my first year. It was a winter outdoor sport at Palm Beach Academy, as you might imagine. So, boys' soccer in the fall, girls' volleyball in the winter, and and boys' lacrosse in the spring. And uh, my volleyball career, that was it. I I didn't do late year two, but uh, uh, you know, that 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 idea of the teacher coach model, very important for schools like ours. My dad, again, was a soccer and lacrosse coach at Park. My mom, a third grade teacher at Park. So also in my blood. Mm-hmm. Um, independent school in my blood. Again, lucky enough to be a faculty brat at Park from age four, right? So uh, that's that sort of mix, if you will, of growing up in the world, uh, having those role models and getting lucky with that phone call that Ted Hill made to, to the Carolina lacrosse locker room. Uh, that's what kicked it off.
0: Yeah. it's funny. It's similar to my experience too, is because when you're coming out of college and you know, you're an athlete and you do have some of those connections or some older guys that are working here and, you know, working at this place, it's easy to, to, to do that. Um, but lacrosse obviously for you too, has always been in my life and, I was giving lacrosse lessons, and I was working with kids, and I was thinking to myself, I kind of like doing this. It's fun to it's fun to teach people the game, and then go see them, you know, play it on the field and and take your advice. Um, so, a similar way, it almost fell into my lap or came across me, and I was like, Well, why not? Why not teach and coach and you know, um, do something I love, which is English and lacrosse too. Those two things combined. Um, so it really. And then once you start doing it, I think just in my case, I've really enjoyed it so far. It's rewarding, uh, fulfilling. Um, and I guess that's kind of the similar story for you is you got into it. You started coaching at that school in Florida and teaching and never really did, did you ever pursue something else or think about going into a different career. It's been fully education since then.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um after you know, that that school was on its last legs and I wound up moving back to the Triangle area of North Carolina um, and I wrote a bunch of letters. This is a good lesson too, right? Like this was pre, way pre-internet email, right? So I wrote letters and wrote to every private school in, in the Triangle area, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. Um, you know, and these guys, the girls, the headmasters, the assistant heads, the, the whoever was receiving these letters, I guess throw them away or held them or whatever. Durham Academy held, held the letter. And then in, in that summer, um, they had a sixth grade social studies teacher that whose husband got an opportunity to move to Greece for three years. Uh, and so she resigned her position. And next thing you know, Durham Academy called me, I'd written them in, in, I don't know, February, right? Like I had no idea. Like they kept the letter. Uh, and, uh, next thing you know, they called me over and, uh, sit down with uh, the middle division director and the lacrosse coach. And next thing you know, I had the job, right? And 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 that, that Durham Academy is an outstanding school, um, stellar and well-earned reputation, does great things with their kids and with the community. Um, and for me to then fall into that lap, right? And be a part of the Durham Academy community was just, was incredible. And so, um, you know, again, lacrosse was a sort of a nascent sport. This was 1989. Um, uh, growing in North Carolina, but but really on the front end of that. And for me to be able to take over that program fully in 1991, the head coach there, Kevin O'Connor, outstanding All-American lacrosse player from the University of Massachusetts, um, who had been, he was the fifth grade social studies teacher and varsity lacrosse coach. Kevin took me under his wing and, and he and I co-coached for two years and then I took over, he was ready to get out um, and just ran with it, right? And then you're so busy. I was also coaching varsity soccer by then Uh, two varsity sports. I had two kids um, and I was teaching full time, you know, 15 years goes by like that. Right. So, you know, I started a couple of lacrosse camps. I had a summer league that I ran at Durham Academy I had day camp. I ran at Durham Academy overnight camp uh, that I ran at a uh, North and South Carolina as well. Um, uh, Overnight team camp we did for a while. So I was just hustling. Right. I mean, one of the things about being a teacher coach is, and again, a competitive former athlete, I guess, right. Is just, uh, just hustling, like not afraid to work hard.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And hard. I, I think ahead. about that too. When I'm, uh, when you're teaching, you bring up competition and you're naturally competitive. And at first I, th- I kind of thought this when I was teaching, like there, there's not that much of a competitive aspect to it because, you know, if you teach a really good class or not, that day, there's no, like, there's no scoreboard. There's no one telling you, like, you did really well. Or you, you could have done better. But naturally, that competitive drive is like, if I teach a so-so class, the next day I'm going to want to do better. And then if I do a really good class that day, the next day you're going to want to one-up that a little bit. So I think that, that almost plays a part into the position as well as the competition of it or just the striving development of teaching.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, you got to be self-motivated, you know, because you are a teacher, you're not going to get fee, There's no sales quotas. There's no board. They're not going to put you up against the other people in your department, right. And measure you against each other. It's, it's really internally driven and, and, and motivated for sure. This intrinsic uh, drive. And again, I, mission focused. I mean, I think this idea of the teacher coach in either realm, you're in service to others. Right. I mean, it's not really about you, you know, Uh, it's about helping people, kids in this case, be the best they can be, be it on the field or in the classroom. You know, you're 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 serving others and, and, and that feels good, too. Right. So, you know, you can it's interesting contradiction there. You in some ways, juxtaposition anyway, between being driven, but being driven to to help others. Yeah because you know there was no bonus check for me when i won a state championship at durham academy (laughs) like okay you won the championship great you got a t-shirt but we're gonna do it again next year right like it's it's more about helping those kids and in fact i used because i was there for a long time right like and we won a bunch and and sort of by the late 90s we had some of our best teams uh and if they had a bad practice or or if we were screwing up in the first half of some game that actually mattered you know towards the end of the year playoff game even as like fellas i've i I've done this, like You know, this is your shot. You know, I've got five championships. <laughs> this is yours, man. Yep. You got to get into it. Cause I don't care. Like I, I we've done this, you know, right, So, right. you know, um, it's funny.
0: Now, as you were, uh, teaching and coaching in those early years, or really as your career progressed, was there any, um, Desire to become a headmaster was that in the plans at all, or were you pretty content with what you were doing in the classroom and on the field? And where did that, um, where did that next step to enter administration? When did that come into play? Uh,
1: so I would say that um, again, time flies, right? And, and when you're raising a family and you're really busting it uh, through the course of the year, coaching two varsity sports and then running camps in the summer, time flies. Right. But you pick your head up and then you're 40 years old. and It's like, OK. Right. And, and so that happened for me and to me. I stopped coaching soccer in 2000. Um, and that gave me a little headspace. And then I started to think about sort of what am I going to do at the same time? Um, again, as a middle school teacher, middle school advisor, middle school curriculum coordinator, um, I was starting to think I, I knew more than, the, than my bosses. And at some point you sort of have to put your money where your mouth is. One thing about our industry, you, you know, you almost always have to move out to move up. I mean, right. It's really hard to, to go from being a teacher to being the the middle school director
0: yeah.
1: within the same school. Cause the middle, right. there's only one and he or she is there. Right. right so right. Um, I started, I started to get frustrated with the course of, uh, the the eight to three part of my day, I, you know, the coaching was fine because I was in control of that. I wasn't in control of everything from eight to three, if you will. And I guess I started to to think that, you know, I was getting frustrated by that. And, and then I sort of realized, well, put up or shut up, right? Like you can complain all day long, but you don't want to become a bitter old person within the industry hanging on because of the benefits or or whatever legacy you may have left. And so I just kind of leaned in and started to apply for some administrative jobs. I will say also that our younger son, Jordan, was a, became an ice hockey player, weirdly, in Chapel Hill. The Carolina Hurricanes had come to the Triangle right when Jordan was, you know, sort of six, seven years old. So he starts playing, learning to play hockey. And uh, next thing you know, we're playing, that. we're doing the whole travel hockey thing. I mean, his last league in North Carolina, he played for Team Carolina, and the league was like Dallas, Miami uh dc and carolina I mean, we would literally we were crazy right oh, so
0: wow.
1: yeah so i i did exactly what earlier i preached not to do but there's we didn't have high school hockey at durham academy so he had to play travel hockey just to play hockey um so we started to think about that too and say you know what maybe maybe we should go somewhere that, they, that has hockey right um because he wound up being pretty good and uh so those two things combined had me apply for some jobs at some places that were in hockey playing regions of the country and um, just got pushed to to go into administration, frankly, because I didn't want to be a grouchy old man complaining about my administrators.
0: So you went from Durham Academy to Minnesota to Blake School. Um, what was that transition like for you from teaching and coaching to a more administrative role in a different part of the country adjusting to a new school and maybe some of the things you learned from that switch
1: yeah so it was it was I mean hugely growthful right again just as leaving Baltimore and going to Carolina was for me anyway um we were very comfortable in Chapel Hill I'd been there 20 years total the five years at UNC a two-year hiatus in Florida but then 15 at Durham Academy so you know you live a life in 20 years at Chapel Hill and it's just a great place right and and uh could have spent the rest of my life there, but something about pushing myself outside of that was really important. Um, and I think a good life lesson for many. And so a huge stretch, just a, a part of the country I'd never been to. Um, I would argue one of America's best kept secrets. I think Minneapolis is a really great town. It certainly was when I was there, 04 to, to 11. Um, school administration is a different animal. And, and interestingly, um, you know, Minnesota is definitely a blue state, and and there was there was a bit of a uh, us, uh, you know, sort of us them mentality around the faculty there. I, I would say I don't want to be pejorative about this, but a, more of a union mentality almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the administration was seen as them, um, which is not at all how things were conducted for the majority of my time at Durham Academy. You know, we were we were all trying to pull the oars in the same direction, right? And yep. and, and so. Uh, that became an interesting eye opener for me too. Sort of how to manage people that like naturally didn't trust you, not because of you, but because of your position, maybe,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: Um, and so I just tried to break down some of those barriers over my time there. I think team building, you know, had been a strength of mine as a coach, and so that's a transferable skill in terms of leadership for sure. Uh, so worked hard to to build trust and build team and uh, remind everybody that we're actually there for the kids. And so, you know, how many free periods you do or don't get in a row, like doesn't matter to me. Uh And so uh, that's, you know, that was, it was a great time in my life. And I had some unbelievable professional mentors, John Gula, who's now the executive director of the E.E. Ford Foundation. He was the head of school there at the time, legendary headmaster with a storied independent school career before he got the Blake, Lisa Lyle was the assistant head. She went on to go uh, and run Mary Institute St. Louis country day school for a long time. Now she's over in Switzerland running the school. Um, just impressive colleagues uh, an impressive community and, and a heady challenge for me, given where I was at that time of my life, just to sort of have to reinvent myself as an administrator in a new part of the world.
0: So when you came down to um, Berkeley prep, uh, 2011, um, curious maybe what you took from your previous couple positions or three different areas locations and you know teaching and coaching and then getting into administration a little bit in Minnesota um, you know to a role as, as the headmaster uh, maybe you know a couple steps up from from where you were before um, and maybe what, what are some surprises you found in that role at the beginning and some things that maybe you didn't expect Um, but also some of the positives and some things you really like about, you know, running a school, being, being the head.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, in Minnesota, again, at Blake, I was the middle division director. So I was in charge of an entire division and 40 kids, 40 teachers or 45, um, 300 plus kids. So it was, it was a good experience for sure. It was, it was very much a, a middle school experience. Although again, Gula, brought us in on school-wide decisions. So I had a very strong peek under the curtain of what it was like to to run a pre-K through 12 because John was such a good and strong mentor, but there's nothing like actually being in the seat, right? And um, early on, I guess I would say that, well, there's two things that first-time heads just don't know much about, almost invariably, uh, finances and fundraising, right? I mean, this is, a, this is a 40 million, $45 million operation. I have 280 employees, I mean, it's a business, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, you know, if this was a corporation, it'd be one of the largest in Tampa in some ways. Um, but you but you never really understand that aspect until you're in the chair, right? Um, and so working with our CFO here, got to learn a lot very quickly about the finances and, and how they work and recurring expenses versus non-recurring expenses and auxiliary revenue generation opportunities, summer camps, uh, you know, and then, then because I had an entrepreneur, I have an entrepreneurial spirit, that all that was all kind of exciting to me. Like, you know, the idea of running a business that happens to be a school, because you know, I ran that lacrosse camp, those lacrosse camps for 20 years total. I mean, I was running them when I was in Minnesota, started in 1992, probably folded it in 06. So whatever that is um, no later than 06. Now, heck, I was doing that when I was here. <laughs> the Dixie might've gone for 20 years easily to 2012 or so, because we had some Berkeley kids that came. Um, so running a business was not foreign, but it's, you know, it was a business that, I don't know, netted 20 grand in, in our best year, right? Not 40 million. Uh, but it was, it was fun to kind of take over this school and learn about it as a business. I talk about, you know, lifelong learning and and, and that opportunity really, Uh, was cool. And I think I was ready for it. And and it's been fun from that standpoint. And the other thing is the fundraising, right? I mean, you know, one of the primary jobs of a a good head of school, I think, is to secure the school's future through um, uh, philanthropy, making sure that our school's biggest believers uh, believe in us strongly enough to invest in our mission and invest in our futures. And and, uh, so learning how to have conversations with Donor prospects, parents, grandparents, alums, learning how to tell the Berkeley story, learning how to evoke that passion and that connection back, and and to and to motivate people to to join me in my quest to uh, again support these kids as best we can, provide the best possible environment for them um, as they go through their their days and years. Um, again, it's 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 really fun work, but it was hard at the beginning because. I'd
0: never done it before. Is there any, uh, so for someone like me maybe who I think a little bit about that position, the headmaster position, and I've watched Henry Smythe, our headmaster, the past couple of years and observed him and kind of see what he does. I mean, obviously I don't get to see behind the scenes, but for somebody who does have some curiosity or some interest in that pursuit of becoming a headmaster maybe one day, what are some... You know, you mentioned the lacrosse camps and that obviously had some valuable experience for you in terms of the financial side of things. But um, what do you think some of the biggest ways somebody can maybe get some experience or prepare for a role like a headmaster as a teacher or coach? Or at least maybe think about what it might be like, um, you know, in the future, maybe.
1: Yeah, well, so the first thing I would say to that is is to lean into leadership opportunities, working with other adults, right? One of the things that can happen over a career, and again, I was a full-time teacher for 17 years, right? So um, I, I speak from vast experience that that you wind up uh, working with kids all day, right? All, all year, mm-hmm. whether in the classroom or then on the field, and then in the summer at the camps, but you're mostly working with other kids, with kids. Um, learning to lead adults is the other side of the equation, right? Administrators, school administrators, you know, much more often lead other adults. Right. And, and, and so that's, that's the big divide there Yeah, going from, from trying to get 20 kids to, to do something you want them to do to try to get 20 adults to do something you want them to do. Right. And so, you know, volunteering for committees, serving, serving in, in, in various ways to serve the school as part of, you know, whatever it's a curriculum development committee, this or a, a self-study accreditation committee that any chances that you have to sit with other adults and, and, and work together on something or even, you know, lead a conversation or conversations around something towards some end could be an ad hoc initiative, right? Um, but but to, to, to try to get somebody to, to appoint you or one, uh, that sort of opportunity, that's that's huge. Um, you know, the, you would, it'd be rare to jump straight from teacher to, to headmaster. So at some point, people aspiring to be a headmaster have got to go ahead and make the jump into administration it doesn't mean you got to go be a headmaster, but if you take on a job as a dean of students in the upper division or, or lower division director or anywhere in between, at least now, well, not so much Dean of students are still directing kids but uh, you know assistant whatever this or that assistant middle division director assistant upper division director. Um, now you're working more with adults you've crossed over into administration and from there you sort of see like how that fits that's generally been the way the pattern almost always goes uh, unless you're working at a really small school um and then there's all sorts of other things right i mean neis and and various state accrediting agencies from aims I'm probably still in maryland yep yep i'm sure that there's uh opportunities within, I know there is within NAIS uh, to get a peek under the curtain. And then again, most importantly for me, I, again, I took the leap into administration, took over the middle school with Blake, and then I had a headmaster who was interested in my leadership development. I think that's the key, right? Is that once you're sitting next to um, a school leader, what you hope for is that that school leader teaches you the ropes and shows you what's going on. And, And even if it's just by listening, as he think he or she thinks out loud about the decision-making process they're going through, you're there and you're learning, you're soaking that up. And again, as you mentioned with, uh, with, with Willie, for example, with any coach, you know, some of it you learn like what not to do, right. Or at least wouldn't fit your own style. But, uh, I had that really awesome opportunity to have some great mentors in, in Lisa and John and, uh, sort of set, set me on a strong course.
0: That's pretty awesome. That's great advice. Um, uh, Berkeley prep. I've never been there. Um, when you're selling Berkeley prep or just talking to people about Berkeley prep and where you are, what are some of the kind of points that you offer about what separates Berkeley from other schools in Tampa? Yeah. Well, most
1: recently we, uh, we just dominated, uh, Arch Manning and Isidore Newman on national TV last Friday night.
0: Oh, you yeah. did well. That's awesome.
1: Forty nine twenty four. But, um, no, I think, I think, uh, Look, and I've been at some great schools ever since I was four years old, right, as we've as we as we've covered. This, this place um, has an unbelievably uh, strong school spirit, uh, sense of positivity, optimism. There's great passion and commitment here uh, for each other and this community. It's just a really happy place. I mean, authentically so. The kids are not beat down. I mean, we work them hard, and we have great college outcomes. You can see it on the website. I mean, you know. We do as well about as about any in terms of national merit semifinalists this or or, or college placements that, but uh, the kids are still smiling and they're smiling in September and they're smiling in February and you know I think that that's a great testament to the support they're getting from their faculty, um, the, the, the 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 atmosphere you know Berkeley puts people in the world who make a positive difference is kind of our vision statement. We are very service oriented here. We have a food pantry across the street that we took over about nine months ago, and now we're, you know, serving food, providing food under resourced folk in the town and country area, we run a whole summer program um, called the Berkeley Academy for under resourced kids that uh, might experience deep summer learning loss if it weren't for our six week free summer program and then we also meet the kids on Saturdays once a month during the course of the year. We hired a college counselor this year just to help those Berkeley Academy kids get to college. Um, so, our, so our service efforts are terrific. Uh, I think this this per- pervasive sense of being, uh, you know, being responsible for something bigger than oneself, right? This, this sense of social responsibility is huge. Um, and then internally, I would argue that we've we've Pushed big on helping each child be known and nurtured, and to the extent that we can affect it well. So, this idea of known, nurtured, and well I mean, we're a big school, 1,400 kids, pre K through 12, but we want each child to understand conspicuously that there are adults here, more than one, um, as well as other students that, that care deeply for them, that want to nurture their development, uh, want them to um, feel like they're being uh, forwarded and supported. By this community of others around each of them. Um, and then ultimately, uh, we're there to support them and, and frankly, forever. And one of the things I say all the time, especially to our seniors, graduation week or whatever, is you know, your school forever. I mean, we're not finished with them when they cross the graduation stage. Uh, we have a very strong alumni relations department. We want these kids to feel. Uh, just wholly invited to call on us. They want to transfer colleges. They need help finding a first job. They want to move back to Tampa, need connections in commercial real estate, this or whatever that like, you know, our, 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 I think our alumni network is pretty, pretty strong. And, and we want to be there for, for our, our students, you know, again, forever.
0: Wow. Oh, sounds like an awesome place. Um, a lot of similar overlaps, I think with Gilman a little bit when you're talking about service and knowing the boy, knowing the student. Um, a lot of those things come to mind here too, a little bit. Um, so Joe, maybe one more question, if that's all right with you, Um, Sure, coming, coming to the end of the hour here. But one thing that I like to do on the podcast is for every guest, I I ask them if they have a book recommendation or something that they've been reading, or just in their life has affected them? Uh, I'm an English teacher, so I, I love getting recommendations all the time. And you no, know, you're a history guy, so is there a history book or something that you've read over your life that has made an impact on you and that you think about a lot?
1: Well, I, I do love reading histories and um, recently uh, have been reading A, a History of the uh, World in Six Glasses. It's a book... Uh, that really covers the history of the world, talking about different beverages and how they've uh, affected the world: uh, beer, wine, coffee, tea, um, soda. Uh, really interesting way to a lens with which to understand human history through the lens of these uh, six glasses, if you will. Uh, I, you know, uh, funny when you mentioned this before, and I was thinking about it. Yeah, I'm going to plug a, a fellow Gilman alum. I don't know if you've read this, but uh, whose game is it anyway? This is a Gilman guy from the class of 1985. He's up at uh, Harvard now. And, uh, you know, back to where we started this conversation. Uh, I read that book when it came out, um, you know, talking about who, whose game is it, right? Like parents and the, and the, and the over-intrusion, I think, and, and parents taking way too much credit or or putting way too much emphasis on their kids' kind of outcomes mm-hmm. in, in sports, uh, the whole club scene, you know and really trying to get back for, for the coach in me and, the, and the, the coach in all of us just reminding ourselves that the game is really for the kids, right? Yeah. Uh, so whose game is it anyway? It, it was a great book that influenced my coaching greatly. Uh, and my buddy who was there at the hall of fame, uh, induction ceremony the other week, um, sent me this. He claimed that I was, uh, one of his heroes and, uh, Admiral McRaven, who's spent time here in Tampa at MacDill air force base. Um, the hero code has been a, been a recent favorite of mine. He mailed it to me and congratulations for the Hall of Fame induction. And uh, I've been enjoying that most recently. But, uh, you know, we got a gigantic library full of books. And uh, one of the costs, I will tell you, of school administration is you don't get a chance to read as much. Um, I advocate reading all the time with our kids, especially our youngest, Buccaneers at the fifth grade moving up ceremony every year. I tell the kids, you know, as they go into summer, read, read, read was one of the great things that, that I had in my life uh, summers in Parkton, Maryland. I mean, I shot lacrosse balls against the barn and read books, right? And uh, all summer, every summer for a long time. And now, of course, I'm like working way too much. And <laughs> so uh, don't get to read as much for pleasure as I once did. Uh, still try to find carve out some time in the summer. I think it's important for all of us, teachers, administrators, so, you know, I've recently been able to work out in in my arrangement with my board of trustees, the opportunity to, to be away in July. And, uh, and, uh, we have a place in Northern Ontario, Canada, uh, where as a child I used to read a lot as well and can't wait to get back there this summer after two years of being banned from crossing the border, uh, (laughs) get back to some great reading in July.
0: Awesome. Those are three great recommendations. I'm gonna have to check those out. McRaven. He's the make your bed uh speech and book and he's one of my favorites I've seen that book around so I'm gonna pick that up um and then the other one just perfect coming full circle in this conversation about that's something that's been on my mind a lot is you know parents and and kids and the club scene and just I describe it as an arms race because everybody's doing it everyone's playing for this club team you feel like your kid has to play in it and then I coach and it's a lot of it's really bad, but I, I don't know what the solution is or the way around some of that um, toxicity in the sport and in coaching uh, is, but it's interesting to think about. So thank you for it, those.
1: It really is. The last, I'll, last thing I'll pontificate about that is that the thing about it is it's, it's self-perpetuating it's because very few people will ever admit they were wrong parents, right? So you invest thousands of hours and tens of thousands of dollars, you know, starting in fifth grade and some sort of, you know, year round sport activity. But very few people show up at the country club when their kids are sophomore and and, and admit that that was all a waste of time. Right. That's like so. So now you're just feeding that next crop because the the crop moves through and then they're gone. But now you get that next group of fifth graders and they're going to buy in, buy in, buy in. And then whatever happens, happens, you know, and then you got the one or two shining examples. Somebody actually got a a half ride to Maryland or whatever, but you know, the majority of them don't wind up panning out, if you will. And the the aspirations that the parents had when the kid was in seventh grade, but nobody ever admits that.
0: I wonder why though, because I feel like you would feel that way. If you put all this money and, and effort into getting your, your son to play at Virginia and then it doesn't pan out because I don't know the club program didn't work or didn't really take to the sport and practice enough on his own. And for whatever reason, I mean, I, I wonder why parents don't really acknowledge that or come to terms with that and, and share that with others. I guess As it's part of the why? investment.
1: Right. Well, I, my theory is because in the end, the kid just wasn't that good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what you'd have to say.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's very true. That's very true. Um, well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on today. I appreciate your time. Uh, I love the conversation. It's great getting to know you a little bit. And uh, thank you very much.
1: My great pleasure. Go Greyhounds.
0: Go Greyhounds. Thank you.